The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, June 27th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So, if you add a day and subtract 100 years, you'd realize that June 28th, 2014, that is the 100th anniversary of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. And it's a crazy story. Franz Ferdinand, not just an indie rock band, the heir apparent to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He visits Sarajevo 100 years ago tomorrow, or if you hear it on Saturday, 100 years ago today. Austro-Hungary, not a popular uh, empire there. They had just taken over the Balkans. There were these ethnic Serbs, young Bosnia, they called themselves. They wanted Austro-Hungary out of the Balkans. One of these guys is Gavrilo Princip, who is a plot of, we think, seven assassins. And so the assassins line the Archduke's motorcade's route, which was highly publicized. Everyone knew where he was going, which is stupid. The motorcade passes the first assassin. That guy doesn't act. They pass the second assassin. That guy says there's maybe a policeman nearby, but we know he doesn't act, probably nerves. But the third assassin acts, throws a bomb. Not really a bomb, hand grenade, 10-second delay, doesn't explode under the Archduke's car, but a later car, and it causes a lot of injuries, and the Archduke sees this. So the Archduke speeds away. He speeds past three other assassins who don't take a shot. The first guy who threw the bomb, actually the third guy in line we now know, chews down on a cyanide pill and jumps in the river couple problems. The cyanide's old, doesn't cause them to die, causes them to vomit. The river's only about four inches deep. So that's stupid. Then the Archduke continues on his day. Just continues. He was supposed to give a speech at the city hall in Sarajevo. He does that. In fact, the speech is covered in blood because it was in the possession of an aide who was holding the speech who's one of the bombing victims. The Archduke, who's described as this irritable guy, doesn't want to give up his regular agenda. In fact, the governor of the province says, yeah, what do you think? Sarajevo's full of a assassins? The answer, by the way, is yes. So the Archduke goes back. He wants to visit the hospital where some of the victims are. And they take basically the same exact route as they took to get there. So stupid. Now, there's some argument. There are a couple Germans involved or German speakers involved. There's a couple Czechs involved and there's some miscommunication. So it's communicated to the guy who's driving the Archduke's car you should turn around. Or maybe it's not. Some say the car stalled. Anyway, as the car was continuing along, they pull up right across the street from a delicatessen named Schiller's. And in this delicatessen, just moments before, the assassin that we spoke of, Gavrilo Princip, is there. He had just eaten a sandwich. Side note, he almost definitely had not eaten a sandwich, but this is the sort of thing they say in history class because, I don't know, Paul Harvey is in charge of our history. So even if he wasn't eating a sandwich, he's right there. That we know. So this assassin, he didn't get his first shot at the car, but this guy's right there and he's not moving. Pulls out his pistol, bang, bang, kills the Duchess, Zophie. Princip later apologizes for that one and kills the Archduke. And that's it. That's history. 16 million souls lost, but for this guy. And so the thing is, for years, historians said that the war would have been inevitable. Even if there was no assassination that day, Europe was going to war. But now they're looking back at this and they're wondering how inevitable was it? And really, the whole story serves to illustrate how inevitable is history. What if the assassin had never stopped for a sandwich, which we know now he didn't. All right. In today's spiel, we're going to talk about just saying we won, admitting it, or at least the difficulty with acknowledging progress. And I'll talk to Paul Rayburn, the author of Why Fathers Matter. Paul and I are fathers of sons. Our sons go to the same school. And in fact, that's where we had our chat. But now the Polish foreign minister said some off-color things, which we will quote exactly. Remember that bad word warning at the beginning of the podcast? Well, here's where we earn it. Diplomacy versus real talk. 
A week or so ago, a Polish magazine started leaking the secretly recorded conversations of Radislaw, known as Radek Sikorski, Poland's foreign minister. And we should mention he's married to Anne Applebaum, who is a Slate contributor. I want to give you some context about Poland. It's often said that Poland is more pro-American than America. So when Sikorski said, and by the way, this is a great thing not being within the reach of FCC regulation, because I'm going to quote him exactly. So he said this about the United States, you know, that the Polish-U.S. alliance isn't worth anything. It's downright harmful because it creates a false sense of security. Complete bullshit. We'll get in conflict with the Germans, Russians, and we'll think that everything is super because we gave the Americans a blowjob. Losers. Complete losers. And then he said of the British Prime Minister David Cameron, he fucked up his whole strategy of feeding scraps just to satisfy them, meaning Cameron's critics, just as I predicted, turned against him. He should have said fuck off. But, you know, these comments were made before the war in Ukraine, before President Obama went to Poland, pledged support. It was also a private conversation. Well, joining me now to talk about the implications of these leaks and the publication thereof is Gideon Rose. He's the editor of Foreign Affairs magazine, was an official at the Clinton White House. Hello, Gideon. Hi there. So aside from the shock of this diplomat using these words, did Sikorsky get much wrong by your estimation? I think this is all titillating gossip, but not really a significant uh, diplomatic incident, because while it does in many respects express some of Roddick's uh, inner views, it doesn't actually express much that deeply policy-relevant. But it can be an educational experience for some Americans who assume that everybody takes everything we say at face value. So should we say, you know what, you got to be careful of what you say anywhere. There's a world where every iPhone is a recording device, blah, blah, blah. Or should we say, you know, that trend's terrible, that that diplomats have to be able to speak freely, that they have to be able to, to vent, that maybe they bounce ideas that they might not even hold off each other? You know, what's the piece of advice to come out of uh, not the specific comments, but the idea of getting your private conversation taped and played everywhere. I mean, look, it, it, the short answer is that we all should grow up and not worry uh, when somebody says something a little bit off color or a little bit inappropriate and just look to the actual facts in the full context. Uh, unfortunately, what it probably will have is some kind of chilling effect in which good people who are prone to be emotional or strong-minded don't go into government, then the only people who you actually uh, get in positions of power are airbrushed, bland nobodies who never say anything that is interesting at all. Or ideologues who, if you recorded them, will say they're bluster what they always say in public, but those don't make good diplomats and those don't understand the shades of gray that's sometimes necessary for diplomacy. This is really a, a shame because Braddock has been just great, and he's one of these people who, although his country is not hugely geostrategically significant, in other words, it's a middle power rather than a great power, he himself is a figure of stature and could easily run Europe and be uh, a major player uh, and certainly do Europe's foreign policy uh, as well as or not better or better than uh, Lady Ashton and so forth. Do you think it'll hurt him? It's hard to say. It certainly has been an embarrassment and has hurt him slightly. Uh, Whether it will have legs, I think we're not sure yet. It's only a weekend or so. So what do you do about your allies who may be more worried about a threat than you're worried about it? The stakes are higher for them. They have misperception. They have right perception, whatever. But they need to be acknowledged. How do you take their concerns into account without letting their biggest fears drive U.S. policy? I think the sad fact is that, you know, having allies, uh, like any kind of relationship, means that you have to take the other person's concerns into account somewhat and try to communicate very well. And 
people in Washington need to understand that other countries have sensitivities, have fears, have worries, have hopes, have dreams that we don't necessarily pay much attention to. And that since uh, they're often affected by our actions, right. we should be more sensitive and uh, listen as much as we talk. You know, as George Bush uh, once famously said, George H.W. Bush, in a campaign appearance, when he was reading his notes, message, I care, <laughs> right? You know, we need yeah. to send that message a little more. And I yeah. think that, frankly, I think the Obama administration could and should have done more with NATO during uh, the recent events in the spring, uh, in which they could have said, the president could have said, hey, NATO is our core security alliance. We are never, ever going to do anything to undermine that. The Article 5 guarantee is a hard one, and nobody has to worry whatsoever. I think that would have been a kind of ringing and appropriate thing that, that somebody like Roddick would have you know, appreciated. Yeah, and if Americans find it hard to identify with those concerns, remember, there was a book that Ron Suskind wrote called The 1% Doctrine. The 1% Doctrine was after 9-11, Dick Cheney's belief that if there's a 1% chance that Pakistani scientists are helping Al kite. If there's a 1% chance that this is going on, we have to respond. So America has this, you want to call it paranoia, deep, deep sensitivity to a, a threat. Every country has this, you know, as you're saying, we perhaps need to be more sensitive or even better, express our sensitivity to this a little more. I think that's absolutely true. And look, what we don't tend to understand is just how strong we are, just how powerful we are. And what that means is how, you know, sort of uh, noblesse oblige, that, that we have an obligation to be the bigger party, to be less sensitive than others. We are strong enough to be the big person in a whole lot of situations uh, and take others' concerns into account, and we rarely do that. Instead, we use our strength and power to basically tell the rest of the world, we don't give a damn what you think, here's what we think you should do. So there's been this trend, I don't know if it's a recent trend, but it seems to me like a recent trend of these international tapes, secret conversations in the Afghan election, secret tapes talked about sheep stuffing, which was supposedly like ballot box stuffing or bribing people in the Erdogan government in Turkey, just totally roiled by these secret recorded conversations. Is there a through line? Is there a trend? Should opinion on this, uh, what I perceive as this recent trend of these uh, tapes that might have been illicitly gotten affecting public policy? Yeah, I think the trend is not so much about public policy, but about the world that we live in. I mean, Donald Sterling uh, was brought down by a tape. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, so the real question is, are we living in a world now in which everything is digitized? And unless you're totally off the grid living in a yurt somewhere, you're simply going to be vulnerable to having your comments publicized. And they, if that's the case, then the question becomes, you know, do you always have to be circumspect in your comments, no matter where you are or when you are? All right. I just want to tell you this. This just came across the wire. The foreign minister of Outer Mongolia involved in yurt gate. His yurt was bugged. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, I would not be surprised. <laughs> and foreign affairs is on it. Gideon Rose, editor of foreign affairs. Thank you so much, Gideon. Thank you. So as a hundred kids play in this schoolyard, I'm here talking with Paul Rayburn, the author of the new book, Do Fathers Matter? What's the subtitle? What Science is Telling Us About the Parent We've Overlooked. All right, that is the subtitle. But I have to tell you, Paul, we're friendly. I've read a lot of things you've written, but I wasn't even sure I wanted to interview you for this book because I thought the subtitle should be something like, Do Fathers Matter? Well, duh. <laughs> hey, well, yeah, I've got a lot of that reaction. So... It's a bit of a setup. So the answer is obviously yes. I remember before the book was written, you told me the title, 
And I think I immediately said something like, well, you know, we roughhouse and we expand the kids' horizons and the mother's nurture. And you said something like, that's kind of right. I think the one thing we know about fathers, most of us, is that fathers play with their kids differently than mothers do. So the cover of my book has a father throwing a child up in the air, and any number of mothers are horrified when their partners or husbands do that. So uh, fathers do something different. Don't worry, the Kindle version has that father catching the kid. <laughs> right. So um, the, um, the surprising piece of that is that this does a few things, this kind of play. So we're talking about rolling around on the ground, unstructured play, all that stuff. Kids whose fathers engage in that turn out to be more socially adept they're better with kids in school. They learn to adjust to surprising and unexpected social situations and conversation because that's what their dads are doing. They're jumping on them or running around behind them or popping out from a corner. And this even has benefits in, into adult life. So these people, tend, you know, kids are more socially relaxed and comfortable. So what are some other surprising ways that you've found that, that fathers matter? Well, one thing that has, has got a lot of attention, and I think it should, should get attention, is fathers' role in kids' language development. So it seemed to me the, the sort of uninformed view, the view I had before I started, was that mothers probably are more important in that regard. In a lot of families, despite all the changed work situations, you know, mothers still spend more time with the kids and some sense more tuned in and so forth. It turns out some uh, a woman named Lynn Vernon Fagans at University of North Carolina and her colleagues took a look at this within the last few years, and they discovered, you know, a strong correlation between fathers' warm relationship with kids and the kids' language development, and actually no correlation between the mother's relationship and the kids' language development. And uh, so this is the kind of science says, here's the correlation. We found it. We think it's important. Fathers are doing something important with kids. The next well, piece when you say mothers have no correlation, is that that they just, it's a way to look at it. It's not that if the mother stopped mothering, the kid's language would develop just fine, or is it that mothers consistently kind of provide a baseline of development that we can't tease out? Well, I, no, I don't think it's, I think this would have teased it out. I, I think what's happening here, now, obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious, parents' educational level affects kids' language development. So two educated parents are going to have kids with more language than two parents who have limited language abilities themselves, let's say. So that that is the preceding piece. But what they did here was really try to find out who's more important. It turns out that in a heterosexual family, the father is more important. So then from there, you have to do more research to find out why. The speculation is, and I always try to separate the science from the speculation, that fathers may use a broader vocabulary. If they're working outside the home, they may come back with their heads full of more things they've just talked about at work. Um, and they may be a little less attuned to the kids and what the kids know. So rather than modifying their language, that alone is, seems like a good thing, but that, that eases the transition to school, which can be tough. Kids do better in elementary school, and they're more socially adept, and they have fewer behavioral problems even. So this is another one of these things that something that happens in an early age has benefits that carry on. Yeah. There are definitely ways that society thinks fathers matter. Like, you know, okay, this is a 1950s great Santini mindset, but maybe fathers toughen kids up. Or maybe, you know, the mothers uh, clean up the wound and the fathers tell them to rub some dirt in it. So is there anything that your uh, studies show that exploded myths or confirmed them? Well, there's an interesting story about fathers and discipline. This one goes back a few decades, but I think it's worth recalling. In World War II, a lot of young men 
fail their physicals. And all the experts, you know, the psychologists, all the brainy people, knew exactly why that was, they thought. And why that was, was because their fathers had not exerted enough discipline in the home, and they were, you know, they were not uh, tough guys. They were not tough enough for the service. It turns out, when scientists actually looked at that, we swept away some more misinformation. The kids who did better on their physicals and were more masculine in the traditional way were those who had a warm relationship with their dads. It wasn't the toughness of the dads, it was the warmth and the strength of the relationship. And it makes sense once you realize that's the answer because kids are not going to want to emulate a father they don't like or who's mean to them or who's too tough with them. They're going to emulate a father with whom they have a, a, a warm give-and-take relationship. You're the uh, secretary of the PTA, right? I'm the, I'm the recording secretary. I should be working on the minutes right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and our PTA was headed by a man for a while, or co-headed. Yeah, still is, actually. So, yeah, so they're, they're at this school, which is in lower Manhattan, there are a lot of men. You see a lot of men here at drop-off and pick-up, but here it doesn't seem to be as big an issue as it might be some other places. Why? Why do you think that might be? So I'm, I'm going to lapse into New York City exceptionalism. You know, it's, a, it's just things seem to change faster here. Now, by saying that, I'm, of course, illustrating why so many Americans want to have nothing to do with New Yorkers. But I do think that, I mean, among other things, people have unusual schedules here. A lot of people who work, you know, in the arts and different things, and they're working different times, so they're able to come to school during the day. I don't know exactly why, but I know that it varies. Yeah. Hey, Paul, thanks a lot. Mike, it's been fun. And now the spiel. So I was listening to the Brian Lehrer show today. Caller Craig in Queens made a reference. Doris Mon got killed because the police target black and brown people like they do all day for drugs. Doris Mon got killed. I don't know if you heard it. He, he's talking about Patrick Doris Mon. Patrick Doris Mon was a guy minding his own business in Brooklyn one day. An undercover cop approached about a drug buy. Doris Mon apparently took offense. They got into it. Fight ensued. Doris Mon shot and killed. Uh, the family got two and a half million dollars in a settlement. No wrongdoing found on the part of the police. But it was a flashpoint in the era of Giuliani and police civilian tension. Dorismar was killed in 2000. That was 14 years ago. And to be fair, the caller could have mentioned Sean Bell, similar set of circumstances. Well, at least an unjustified shooting, though police didn't, uh, weren't convicted. But, and that happened in 2006. But I did start thinking, why is that the example that comes to mind, you know? And I'll acknowledge, it's a horrible tragedy. It's clear that at the time the NYPD needed reform and that there's no statute of limitations for remembering injustices. But, but, but. If this is the example that comes to mind, maybe it's an indication that police brutality has gone down. Sure, the lack of a poster child or a recent poster child doesn't prove that, but what about it? So I went to the statistics, and in New York, there's a Civilian Complaint Review Board. Again, it's not exact. The number of complaints don't tell you the number of justified complaints. It's affected by a lot of things. So this board was founded 30 years ago, and the first year, the numbers were low. I think people didn't know about it. But right away, every year, they started getting about 5,000 complaints of police abuse, and that was from about 95 to 2000. And then it started rising, rising, rising. So by 2006, there were 7,000 complaints of police abuse. But, you know, since 2009, it's been going down, down, down. So the last year that they have statistics for, 2013, 5,410 
reports of police abuse. And that's too many, and that's not good. And again, we don't know how many of those complaints are legit. But police brutality is going down. Point. I also, you know I'm obsessed with New York City statistics. I was looking at the stats about auto thefts. And in the year 1990, there were 147,123 auto thefts in New York. Last year, it was under 10,000. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this over 90% drop, but you don't hear acknowledged enough that there was an over 90-something percent drop. In fact, we wring our hands now more about the pernicious influence of the video game Grand Theft Auto than we acknowledge the actual drop in actual Grand Theft Auto. And I do think this is a characteristic of the human brain. And to some degree, I'm going to say it's an adaptive strategy, right? Our ancestors on the savannah, how much time could they really spend patting themselves on the back for their mastodon eradication efforts when the saber-toothed tiger threat loomed? And it says something about character in a way. It says something about vigilance. It's a good thing, not giving up until the job is done. Ooh, I just got a George C. Scott-type thrill run up my saluting arm. But it's also a character flaw. If you can't acknowledge progress, you can't contextualize problems. It gets in the way of prioritizing resources, and it does give way to hopelessness. So today, we do have problems. We have problems of wealth inequality and global warming, militants who want to kill us throughout the world, incrementally creeping Kardashianism. By the way, I put something in there for everyone of every political stripe, including the low-information voter. Some of these things seem dire, almost insurmountable. Are they? AIDS seemed insurmountable. It was said to be the scourge of our time. In 1987, Oprah said, quote, research studies now project that one in five, listen to me, hard to believe, one in five heterosexuals could be dead from AIDS at the end of the next three years. That's in 1990, one in five, Oprah Winfrey warning in 1987. But look at the actual statistics. AIDS started off first diagnosed and named in the 80s. In 1987, 13,000 dead of AIDS. A couple years later, 16,000, 21,000, rising, rising, rising. In 1994, there were 40,000 who died of AIDS. It peaked, I think, the next year, 41,699. But then it started going down, and then it started going down even more. Less than 15,000 people in America died of AIDS last year. Now, AIDS is a bad illness, but it's manageable. And you might want to say, well, what about AIDS throughout the world? It's a worse problem. But again, even throughout the world, AIDS is getting better. There is progress being made. I would say the phrase, much progress has been made, is, I don't know, 75% of the time followed by the phrase, but there's still more work to be done. And yet there is still more work to be done, but we don't talk about or think about the progress enough. Actually, I tweeted to Ken Berger, who runs a very good website called Charity Navigator. And I said, Ken, can you think of nonprofits that have shut down because of mission fulfilled? Not a 9-11 type charity, a would-be ongoing charity. He emailed back, no, can't think of one. Now, I'll give you, if you're the March of Dimes founded to eradicate polio, and polio is eradicated, I think it's a good thing that you continue on, you have good name brand recognition, and you fight other childhood diseases. But there are many other counterexamples. I want to take one, the Jewish Anti-Defamation League. Anti-defamation, 
during my lifetime, maybe a little before in the last 50 years, has really, really declined. And the JDL itself does surveys where they find anti-Semitic attitudes in 12% of the population. You know, throughout the last 10 years, it's hovered in the low teens to a low of 12. Well, you know, in 1964, JDL's own survey, 29% of people exhibited anti-Semitic attitudes. Doesn't mean the work is over, but progress has been made. Today, most American Jews do not think there's a lot of discrimination against Jews in the United States. 43% do, 54% don't. And the Anti-Defamation League has expanded their efforts internationally. But what about the idea of talking about progress, of thinking about progress, of even reframing the idea of progress? Progress among progressive people is always seen as a yes, but type idea. Progress, yes, but there's still more to do. Is this really the most useful way to think of progress? The United States cured a disease called pellagra. Ever hear of pellagra? No, you haven't, because it's cured. A hundred years ago, and it was a hundred years ago this year, the doctor, Joseph Goldberger, his name's all been lost to history, he spearheaded the efforts. He identified it. It was poor people in the South who didn't have enough niacin in their diets. They didn't even know that then. 7,000 people a year would die. Hundreds of thousands would suffer from this awful disease. But it was cured. And I think it talks a lot about what's possible now. You know, so much is portrayed as insurmountable, but I think history shows us more than it doesn't that this stuff is, in fact, surmountable. So I would say progress is possible. Progress often happens. We should acknowledge and celebrate and put progress in context, but also let progress fuel our efforts. Less the creeping Kardashianism never be halted. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of Slate Podcast. She's also a leader in the field of Naga Hide eradication. Executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Andy Bowers, has won three consecutive Golden Scoop Awards in his effort to keep horse dung off our city streets. Please subscribe to us in iTunes and give us a review there. It's uh, very helpful. We love your reviews. You can get the daily email from us. Go to slate.com slash gist email. Sign up and we'll send you an email every day the show is posted. Email us directly at thegist at slate.com. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash slate gist. Remember, friends don't let friends drink and operate penny farthing bicycles. And thanks for listening. <laughs>